Megan and I are sort of in awe of this table that we have in front. We're kind of excited about it. And not so much the style. Uh, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. Um, our personal taste runs a little more contemporary. But we're in awe of the size. It's 128 inches long. Isn't that cool? And, um, you know, about 20 years ago, we had the opportunity to buy our first dining room set. The first 20 years of our marriage, we had kind of a smattering of hand-me-downs and something we found in a scratch-and-dent department and some chairs that went with it. And, but 20 years ago, we were in a position of buying a real dining room set. And one of our priorities was that it could fit a lot of people. We wanted a table that would be able to seat 12 people, and we actually found it. And um, it's, it's, it's only 102 inches, though, but it works. You can squeeze 12 around it, and some of you have been at our table when it's uh, there for 12, and some of you are now thinking, how come I've never been invited to your house, but um, I haven't been in a lot of your homes either, so anyway, um, (laughs) we're building community slowly, right? Yeah. But uh, we love this table because it's 102 inches long with both leaves in room for 12, but this is 128, that would be That's 26 inches longer. And as you see it right now, it's actually set for 14. So you can do 14. I suppose you could probably fit a couple more on and really be snug and get it up to maybe 16. We're grateful to our friend Scott Price, who is the owner and president of Tom's Price Furniture, who uh, uh, I reached out to him. I thought, he's probably going to think I'm nuts. And he said, no, we'd be happy. I said, just give me something from your scratch and dent department. He said, no, we want to give you some good stuff. So he gave us one of their good, loaned us, loaned us one of their tables. What the table's trying to communicate here and what it's been doing uh, through the series and in the Prodigal God book is that there's room for everyone at the table. There's room for everyone at the lavish feast that God is throwing. That's the imagery we're going for. That's the imagery used by Tim Keller in his book and in his study, The Prodigal God. This is week six in our study. It's the the final one really from the book, the small group Sunday morning finished up today. And so we kind of finished the book, but we're we're pushing the imagery of the table into next week too. At the Board of Spiritual Life, when we were discussing where the church is going with this and what we're learning, we thought we need to take this imagery right on into Easter and have it be a place of welcome for all. And so the table uh, will still be here next week. And we're going to share communion from the table as well. The table and the story point to the grace of God. They point to the invitation of God to come to the table. We've been saying this each of the last six weeks, that the prodigal God study is giving us a new way of understanding, a new way of understanding the extravagant grace of God that we find in this parable that's familiar to most. And if it's not familiar, the text of it is included uh, with my notes in your bulletin. But this story of the prodigal son that we know, we're seeing in the context of prodigal God and extravagant grace. We've looked at the story of the younger brother, and then we put it into its context alongside the story of the older brother. And then we put the story of the two brothers into the context of this whole chapter, the other lost things. And last week it led us to discovering that Jesus is in fact the true elder brother, the one who does go and help look for the lost to bring them home and who bears the cost. But this final look at the table in this story puts it into the context really of the the whole Bible or the whole story of God, the gospel of grace and God's invitation to life. So today, today the great feast of the Father serves not only as an expression of that lavish grace, because it certainly was an expression of God's grace, it also stands as a larger symbol of God's invitation to all, an invitation to all to turn to Jesus and truly come home. So there's this imagery of coming home as well as just simply coming to the table. 
the bigger story of what God's doing. And therefore, as we looked at the bigger story, one of the first things we look at is the expression of, or the, the, the imagery of the human condition through the son that, that leaves home, the human condition. And then by understanding the older brother, or the true older brother, we've learned something about the divine solution and Jesus paying the price. But today we also look at what it means to be together around this table in the sense of the new community that Christ is building as he works in and through his people and puts a whole bunch of us unperfect people uh, together in a community that is blessed by him. The human condition, we meet the younger brother in this story and we see his sin and rebellion. Uh, We see it in the requests that he makes. We see it in the choices that he makes to take the money and leave home. We find that it takes him then far from home. We have this image of the son being far from home. He is in a sense in exile. He's away from home. He's far from home. His request to dad uh, brought disgrace upon the family. And most likely what happened to this family with him leaving also brought ridicule from the community in which they lived. This son takes the money and he runs far, far away. And there he becomes really an image for the human race. We were made for life at home in the garden, in the garden of Eden that God created. That's where we're made for life. Our true home is in the presence of God, living through his purposes as he created us to be, freely and yet in the presence of God, living through him. But by the choices of our original parents and then by our own choices to do life without God, we lost our home. We were cut off. We are all exiles. We are all far from home in one way or another. Far from home. But inside women and men, there is a longing for home. Home is the place that really fits us and suits us. We were made to know and to serve God. We were made to live in his presence and enjoy his love. We were made to enjoy his beauty and we were made to be to, to, to live in working out his purposes meaningfully in concert with him. We were made to live out his purposes in, in an active life with others in authentic relationships that are changed by him. That's home. That's what we're meant for. And there's something in each of us that yearns for that when we go to the deepest places of desire inside of us. We long to be in that place of of oneness with God and in healthy relationships with others, achieving his purposes. We long for home, but we wanted to do life our own way, and we continually make choices to do life our own way. Or as Keller puts it in the book, we wanted to be our own saviors and lords. We wanted to be our own saviors and lords, and in doing that, we lost home. Let me just read a little bit from Keller's book that speaks of our, our spiritual homesickness. I haven't quoted much from the book, but in case you haven't read it, or even if you have, let me just read a little bit here. The memory of home seems to be powerfully evoked by certain sights, sounds, and even smells. But they can only arouse a desire they can't fulfill. Many of the people in my church have shared with me how disappointing Christmas and Thanksgiving are to them. They prepare for the holidays, hoping that finally this year, The gathering of the family at that important place will deliver the experience of warmth, joy, comfort, and love that they want from it. But these events almost always fail, crushed under the weight of our impossible expectations. There's a German word that gets at this concept, the word Sehnsucht. Dictionaries will tell you that there is no simple English synonym. It denotes profound homesickness or longing, but with transcendent overtones. The writer who spoke most of this spiritual homesickness was C.S. Lewis in his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory. He refers to many similar experiences like those described by Steinbeck and Knowles. And then he says, this is C.S. Lewis now, 
Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. Wordsworth's expedient was to identify it with certain moments in his own past, but all of this is a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would have not found the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to be itself remembering. Get that? What he remembered would turn out itself to be just a remembering. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. Now we wake to find we have been mere spectators. Beauty has smiled, but not to welcome us. Her face was turned in our direction, but not to see us. We have not been accepted, welcomed, or taken in. And Keller goes on with more of Lewis's quote. But the idea is, we, we, we think maybe we found home. We think it is, but often it's just in a, an image that we've made it in, in the remembering. But there is deep in us this spiritual homesickness. The world tries to address these needs. We try to put things in our life. We try to control things around us to, to meet the needs of our heart for that sense of home. We long for love that can't be lost. We long for a, a safety uh, in relationships. We long for an escape from hurting and pain and death. We long for a real sense of purpose. We long for things to be made right. We long for a triumph, a justice over wrong. But these things will never completely be found in this world. The world disappoints us. And the younger brother found himself out there. But when, as the text says, he came to his senses, and the scripture says that, he came to his senses, that homesickness was gnawing inside of him. And he knew he needed to go home, but how? Now, not only was he an exile, but he was also an outcast. He assumed he would be unwelcome. He was doubting that they would receive him. And doubting that he would re- they would receive him, he went towards home anyway. And that's where we see in the bigger picture where this fits, this, design, this divine solution. We see unfolding then this divine solution. The feast of the father becomes sort of a centerpiece of the parable. The father throws this big party with, with music, with dancing and, and food delicacies. All to celebrate the return of his son. All to mark this reconciliation. All to point to a restoration that was happening to his family. And it happened now. It even says that because the son is home, the scripture says we had to celebrate. He says to the older brother, it's not like it seemed like a good idea at the time. We had to celebrate. There had to be a feast. It was important to have a feast. And why was it so important? We need to see how this imagery and and reality of feasting fits into scripture then and even how it fits in our life now. In the Old Testament, especially, meals were where significant things happen. They were far more than for just consuming food. They, they ratified covenants and, and, and agreements together at a table. Feasts celebrated victories. Feasts marked all the special family occasions and transitions such as births, weddings, and funerals. Anybody know what big Old Testament feast still happens every year? In fact, it begins at sundown this Friday night on our Good Friday. The Jews will begin a celebration or an observance on Friday night. The biggest feast of the year begins on Friday night and runs for eight days. It's called Passover. Passover. Passover is the feast that marks really the greatest event in the salvation of God's people up until the time of Christ. The Passover marks... 
really the greatest event in the salvation of God's people up until the sacrifice and resurrection of Christ. It's that significant that they celebrate the feast every year to remember and to believe and to be together. In those days, meals were prolonged affairs that lasted all night right up to bedtime. Part of it's because there really wasn't anything else. You didn't go watch TV after dinner. You didn't go out. You just hung out at the table. But you stayed at the table after the sun went down, after the strenuous work of the day was done. And so evening meals became the center of family life. And over time, they became a symbol and a practice of, of intimacy, of relationship, of bonding. Feasts then were the significant time of being together. But we really aren't that far off from the people of the first century, are we? I mean, gathering around the table doesn't happen quite as often. And for some families, you know that you hit into certain seasons where you go, remind me where the dining room table is? <laughs> because life seems to happen on the run. But we get it. We know. We've, we've been there enough. We understand it enough. We get it. We know that what it's like. We know those meals. We know those gatherings where we feel most at home. Yeah, there might be that disappointment that Keller mentioned from time to time. But we know what it feels like because we've experienced before. We know that at a meal, our body gets what it needs, but we also find that it can be at a meal that our heart and soul get what it needs as well. We need laughter. We need friendship. We need meaningful connections and connection and conversation. We need to feel safe with a group of people that we share a meal with. Megan and I, when we do have those 12 people around our table or less, maybe, sometimes more, whether it's our own children and their spouses or, or friends over, we, Megan and I sometimes, when we're, when we're ahead enough and we get, everything's ready, we try to take a little bit of time to pray before people come because we try to make an effort to get the conversation past chit-chat. I think that's some of those evenings when you finish and go, well, it was nice. The table was lovely. The food was spectacular. We just kind of stayed on the surface the whole time. It seems like there's that desire to go deeper. So that's something that we try to do and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Because it's in the deeper conversations that's so much more important than the spread on the table, really, ultimately, that we feel included, we feel affirmed, we feel safe, we build relationships, we feel at home. In our first racial reconciliation conversation a week and a half, half ago, we covered a lot of topics, but one of the themes was we just need to know each other better. We just need to know each other's stories better. And some of you, have Edith took a moment to share just a little piece of her story today. We need to know that and we feel a connection with people. Feasts also obviously figure in powerfully as a picture of the future kingdom of heaven on earth. Communicating that God will bring us home someday. And so there's also this sense of a future feast even in the story of Jesus and that we will look at some next week. In one of the communion liturgies that Pastor Diane and I sometimes use on a communion Sunday, we quote from Matthew 8, 11, where Jesus says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Many will come from east and west, which is Jesus' way of saying all different kinds of people from all different kinds of places will find their place at this feast. That the Jews did have a lock on it, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and yet now it is a table that is wide open. And of course, this feast that Jesus speaks of looks ahead. In the course in Revelation, we know it as that wedding supper of the Lamb, and we'll reference that a little bit next week as we press on through this theme. Through Jesus, our true elder brother, God will someday make this whole world our home again. 
Not heaven out there, but this world will become our permanent home as it should be. That's the ultimate promise of Scripture, a new heaven and a new earth right here that will be done on, hev- in er- on, on earth as it is in heaven. We will live in his presence and it will be a reality where there is no more death. It will be a reality where there is no more prayer requests for backs that are in pain. It is a reality where there will be no suffering of broken relationship. It is a reality where there will be no more tears. We will have new bodies, praise God, that run and don't get weary. You already know I love to run. But the body keeps reminding me that it's getting older and it gets weary. But there is a hope of this new heaven, this new earth, and it begins with a feast. The images of a feast. Keller quotes from the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, these wonderful books by C.S. Lewis, where Jewel the Unicorn says, towards the end of the series, Jewel says, I've come home at last. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it. Ah, home. I'm home. This is what I've been looking for all my life, to come home. But how do we know that we will be fit for that feast? How did the younger brother know that he was fit to come home? He figured that he wasn't. He did not expect a feast because he knew that he had sinned. But he got a feast anyway. The older brother goes ballistic. And why? Because the, the meal was signifying acceptance and relationship. The Pharisees and the other religious leaders we're always forbidding the, the eating with sinners. To eat with someone was to consider them as family. To eat with someone says we share the same values and the same core beliefs. To eat with someone, to spend time with someone was to let them influence you. You became more like the people that you shared a meal with. So why would you spend time at a table with sinners? They might stain you. And if you're a parent or have ever been involved in caring for young people, you know that. You said that to your children. Bad company corrupts good morals. We never tell our kids that, well, we do tell them they can be influenced on other bad kids, but not yet. They might be an influence on you, and we, we fear for that, and so we set boundaries to protect them. The Pharisees were continually setting boundaries. To eat with a sinner was to become a sinner. And with all the Jewish dietary laws, there was even more boundaries. In fact, I read that those Jewish dietary laws intensified and got more detailed in those few hundred years right before Christ came. Meals then became more and more of a boundary between the righteous and the sinners. But Jesus comes to smash boundaries that separate people. It's what he's doing as Luke chapter 15 begins. The very first two verses of this chapter say that he's hanging out with these notoriously wicked, marginalized people who are horrible because they did not keep the laws of God with the accuracy that the Pharisees kept. And all the regulations that the religious leaders attached to those laws... Jesus pushes past him. What's he doing? Is he just uh, being nice? Is he just trying to be a nice guy to these sinners? What is he doing that will in fact include them at this table, at the feast where they can be then in the presence of God the Father? Jesus is making all things new. He's crashing boundaries, but he's making all things new for the people of God. And this is what we call the new communion. If we keep this image of home in play, we could say that even though he never sinned, Jesus himself left home as well. We looked at Philippians 2 last week where Jesus laid aside his glory, it says. Jesus laid aside the privileges of being God and came to live among us. He left his true home in the presence of God the Father. And he didn't even literally have a home on earth either. He says in Matthew 8.20, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus leaves home 
He lives here, in a sense, in an exile. And then even when he is crucified, he's crucified outside the city, outside the guest gate, which was a sign of exile and rejection. Not even worthy to die near a home, but outside. Jesus experiences the exile and experiences the rejection that the human race deserves. And here it is. He is alienated and cast out so that we can be brought home. Jesus is alienated and cast out of the city, away from home, so that he identifies with us in our need and is able to bring us home and bring us to the table. It goes all the way to the cross, where for a moment, even a moment, Jesus loses his connection. Jesus loses his communion with the Father. On Thursday night at our Monday Thursday communion service, we will close the service in darkness and silence. The final words that will be spoken on Thursday night in this room will be the seven last words of Christ, or the seven last phrases of Christ that we put together from all four Gospels. And one of the words that we will speak is from Matthew 27, 45, where Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For a moment, for just that moment, Jesus loses that connection. He loses that communion with the Father. He is far from home at that moment. He is cast out. He's cut off in the family. But he does it so that we can be brought in. So that we can be brought in. Jesus brings us home. We can see in the parable that Jesus calls younger brothers to repent as the way home. He doesn't just bring them to the table and eat with them just so he could be inclusive. He didn't just take some diversity training and say, well, it's good to have even rotten people at the table, so we'll do this. He doesn't do it just to defy convention and just to kind of irritate the Pharisees. Boy, they're going to go nuts when I put these people at the table. No, he includes it in the table, but he's calling the younger brothers to change. This younger brother came ready to change. He was repentant, and there was a place for him at the table. Jesus doesn't do this just to break with with, with tradition. He is calling younger brothers to change. He's calling elder brothers to change as well. And the change means a turning, a turning towards home, a turning towards the table, a turning towards Jesus. Repentance means to turn. That's what it means, a turning from self to Christ. In bringing us home, Jesus gives us a feast too, you know. It's one that looks ahead to the great feast. We say it every time that we speak it. We will keep doing this feast until he comes again. It's one that we do to get a foretaste of the great feast where we will be truly home forever. We call it the Lord's Supper. We call it communion. We call it a sacrament in our church as well. We generally do it once a month. This week we're doing it twice. We're going to have communion at Monday, Thursday, remembering that last time of Jesus with his disciples around the table. And then we're doing it also on Easter Sunday, not only because it's the first Sunday of the month, because it's such a powerful image of Christ's invitation and of our being included at the table that he has invited us to. And in order to come to this table, you do not have to be perfect. You only have to be repentant and receptive. So anyone can come. And we come with others. We call it communion because we commune with the Lord, but we commune with each other too. It's something we do together. That's why you don't do communion by yourself in your personal devotions. If you do, you're you're not in trouble, but it's intended to be something we do as a a body of believers. That's the expression of of this new life with Christ. We're at a table with others. Not a booth for one, but a table for 14 or more. 
Here's another way to look at it. We, we call it a, a welcome to the table or a welcome to new community. Another way to put it here is that the, the ultimate son, the ultimate son, Jesus, who was dead and cut off, is now alive again. And so we have to celebrate. Just as the father said, we had to celebrate because he came home. We have to celebrate that Christ is risen and has conquered death. And so we celebrate at Lord's Supper every month and we celebrate at Easter. And really, uh, when you look at church history, every single Sunday is a, should be a mini Easter. <laughs> every single Sunday should be a mini Easter. That's why even in Lent, we say it's 40 days, but actually you count, you know, it's more like 47. It's because we don't count the Sundays because we take a little break and it's a mini Easter to celebrate that the risen Christ is in our midst. But even beyond sharing in the sacrament of communion, the way we really celebrate is to create and to live into this new community. To live with other forgiven sinners. A community in which anyone can be a part. The wandering and reckless and rebellious younger brothers and the self-righteous, uptight, get-over-it older brothers, all kinds are able to turn from living that way and be welcome at the table. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter what your economic status or class is. It doesn't matter your race, your background, or anything at all. Any repentant sinner can come home and gather at the table as a brother or a sister because of the death and the resurrection of our true older brother, Jesus Christ. Our older brother who took our exile and punishment on himself so that we could come to this table and be in community. Last Sunday, right after worship, we had a membership class. There were 18 people in membership class last week. Well, actually, there's only 17. Heather couldn't come, but... We included you anyway, because Damon, you went home and told her everything I said, right? Hey, good. So we say 18, 18 in membership class. It was awesome. And it was interesting, at the table we had, or at the, we were at a table there too. We feasted on Malnati's. It was a great feast. We had to celebrate. Anyway, um, people shared their stories, and some are, are very new to our church or new within the last year or two. And there were some that came who've been part of our church for longer than I've been here. And and our faithful worshipers part of our church. But it's interesting as each one shared their story and those five actually who had been here for quite a while, the decision now to join church all had to do with this whole thing of of commitment to community. This step of growth in terms of membership says, I commit to this community. This is my church home. And one person in particular, I was taken by what they said. They said, you know, I, I love the church. I've been coming for a while. My family uh, came here. And I really thought that just coming and showing up for worship and, and attending to my own relationship with Christ was enough. But lately, I've been thinking so much more about the body of Christ. And I need to be more connected to the body, this new community. And I thought, how wonderful in this week as we look to this new communion where we gather around a table as a bunch of imperfect people bringing all of our stuff and yet trusting in Christ. What a great way to share a story. I've been kind of taken by a song that I've heard on K-Love lately when I'm listening to my car by Casting Crowns. It's actually about a broken marriage. It's called Broken Together is the title. And it's a, it's a beautiful melody, first of all. It's a little bit haunting even. It's one that gets stuck in my head. And it's about a building a broken marriage, but I feel like it applies to us in the body of Christ as well, where we're gathered as forgiven, broken people around his table. The chorus goes this way. Maybe you and I were never meant to be complete. Could we just be broken together? If you can bring your shattered dreams and I'll bring mine, could healing still be spoken and save us? The only way we'll last forever is broken together. That's the authentic place to be. 
not putting our, all of our best and pretending everything's fine or afraid to let people know who we are, but saying, hey, I am just a broken person. I'm an elder brother one week and I'm a younger brother the next. But as I admit that and confess that to Jesus and to my sisters and brothers, I find that we can build a strong community when we are broken together, at home together, with him forever. As we wrap up, I just leave you with a couple questions here. I define first with this sense of being lost and far from home, that kind of spiritual homesickness that can happen. But then ask you this question as we enter into Holy Week. What might repentance and turning to Jesus look like for you this week? It might be in terms of your own walk with Christ. It might be in terms of this connection with the body of Christ. What might it look like to recognize the brokenness but say, let's be broken together and find life and health and hope at the feast of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the richness of this parable, this story from Scripture. But thank you for taking us today to the bigger picture of what you're doing, of inviting and loving and wooing and seeking out those of us who are far from home, Lord. Or some of us who think we're home and yet have that little gnawing corner that says, I'm not quite there and I feel a homesickness. Thank you for your invitation to come to admit our brokenness, to return and repent and come to you for grace. Thank you for the grace that is ours at the table. As we walk into this week, Lord, we thank you that you walk with us. We give ourselves to you and pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen.